The Q Affair While some similarities to living people may exist in your mind on reading this novel, it is a work of fiction, so it's your problem if you have people like this in your life. Chapter 5 After Trump's election, it seemed like the whole of America was divided along the lines of pro and anti-Trump. There was talk of civil war, as well as talk of deposing Trump by any means. Comedians were doing their slots on American Saturday night entertainment shows, with weak copies of the same skits and scripted sound bites, I noticed, featuring regularly on pro-Hillary Irish national broadcaster stations radio shows as well, such as Ryan Tuberty's nauseatingly politically correct daily love fest for Hillary. He'd gotten an interview and some photos taken with her after her defeat, and her subsequent interview and photo shoot with him to plug her post-election defeat book, What Happened, was a thank you for his unswerving devotion to her cause with his daily pre-election propaganda every morning. I hadn't had to endure the TV-based character assassinations since I'd long abandoned watching television. This was more than Trump had received post-election, as Hillary had been too shocked and upset by the win to make the usual post-defeat concession speech that was usually considered the well-mannered approach to defeat after the elections, where one wished the winner lots of luck and no hard feelings. These attacks, packaged as comedy, but perhaps also a form of therapy for a nation distraught by Trump's, Trump's surprise victory, not predicted by any of the polls, typically reveled in what they would have had their viewers believe was Trump's innate stupidity, based around his lack of usage of three-syllable words, where less would do the job, his frequent tweets, and his preference for rather orange shades of hair dye, to go with the odd colour of his face, with his sweeping ginger locks combed over his forehead, meeting in hairsprayed into position, slightly Teddy Rocker-style duck arse, as we in Ireland referred to the now slightly dated hairdo in the back. These personal attributes were in sharp contrast to the urbane hepcat Obama, who was just black enough to make him electable by the more nervous white voters, while not reminding them too much of rap artists or the types of blacks that seem to be always getting into bother with police. And he also came with the added racial benefit of making them feel inclusive and non-racist in their voting choice. Obama's campaign speeches focused around the nebulous phrase, choose hope, which had quickly morphed into choose soap on Patriots videos and internet memes. The post-election celebrations celebrated the apparently miraculous election of the first American black president with a synchronized newscast all the mainstream channels of the black televised weep-in, which characterized the post-election celebrations in the eyes of the mainstream media, focusing mostly on black voters' ecstatic reactions to the election of the first black American president. Short reaction interviews with black voters saw many references to Martin Luther King. Republicans were later to accuse Obama's wife, Michelle, of referring to some fellow members of the human race as whiteies, after possibly getting a bit fed up being expected to treat Obama as a saint 
as the democratic voters seem to suggest by their going on about it well after the election because of the colour of his skin. Hillary had later run against Trump on the female thing, but hadn't got far with it, while there was little doubt that Obama had definitely been black, or as the lefties cringingly sometimes put it, ethnic. The first black US president, Barack Obama, had made the average social justice warrior type Democrat feel cozy inside too, as he embodied the friendly, inclusive face of politics that allowed them to feel that everyone was welcome in America and even black people could become president. Social justice warriors received this moniker from alt leftist for their tireless efforts towards promoting the notion of inclusion of minorities by fighting for programs such as equal opportunities programs in universities among students and staff where one could get opportunities to enroll on courses or earn a post based on whether one could claim to be from a disadvantaged racial minority group. Some truth or YouTube channels mocked this attitude, regarding it as bigoted in his preference for minorities, while seeming simultaneously to disdain all white heritage, pointing out how liberals, used as a derogatory term to denote anyone who didn't support Trump's presidency, loved to hate. Liberal women hating men, liberal men of the white persuasion mostly hating themselves, and suggesting that all liberals' love for minorities was a lie. We, yes, I include myself here, dear reader, I'm a great one for taking ownership of my own beliefs, no matter how unpopular they may be with my friends or enemies. All could see how liberals loved almost anyone else from a minority group, as long, of as course, as they didn't actually move into one's neighbourhood. I had noted in my native Dublin in a neighbourhood where houses commanded reasonably high prices on the property market, my own neighbours slight tightening of the lips on stepping outside their doors. Nothing was ever said aloud. It was far too polite a neighbourhood for comments to be passed. But my neighbours' faces as they watched African immigrants festoon the railings of their front gardens with knock-off Tommy Hilfiger underwear after an elderly resident had died and the house had been bought up in the economic boom times as a property investment by a canny landlord and turned into slum rentals, gave some indication of the indigestion they might be having to deal with later while at their office desks, and the personal secretaries that might get shouted at later as an indirect result of the shock of suddenly seeing a pair of black fellas' underpants when you opened your door. Trump, it seemed, had also a very different communication style to the other main candidate in the 2016 elections, Hillary Clinton, whose hair was always immaculate throughout the campaign and whose lines and gestures all had seemed well rehearsed and scripted when she hit her best form. Although it couldn't have been said that her health had as clean a bill. She had several times collapsed into coughing fits during the campaign tour rummaging for green pastilles in her handbag, one of which, one couldn't help noticing, was spat out again into the glass of water provided to her by a helpful Secret Service aide, like a tiny, evil homunculus that was taking a quick dip from a high diving board. These fits, 
documented on various YouTube channels, the pithiest of which was Infopel by far, were frequent. And there seemed to be other worrisome is issues which Democrat voters wouldn't have been aware of unless they'd wandered into the wrong neighbourhood of YouTube where the Patriots hung out. Issues like sudden blank episodes while making rally speeches, which the same aides helped talk her through until what looked like an expression of total panic subsided and she managed to resume her speech where she had left off suddenly. One post-rally moment where she was clutching a takeaway coffee while chatting urbanely with journalists while cameras clicked seemed to capture her having some kind of mini epileptic fit, complete with head spasms and eye rolling. These strange episodes were lovingly analysed by InfoPill, who suspected a major health event was on Hillary's horizon before the vote casting would take place. And indeed, the highlight was soon to follow, at the peak of the campaign, when what would come to be known by patriots as Hillary's weekend at Bernie's moment was captured on film. Hillary fainted while waiting outside a rally she'd abandoned because of feeling unwell on the hot sidewalk, and aides scooped her into her SUV like a side of beef, as Alec Johnson put it. Weekend at Bernie's was the 1980s comedy movie about some friends who escorted a friend that had died around for an entire weekend so that nobody would suspect he was dead. The movie illusion was appropriate, as many Democrat voters remained unaware of Hillary's poor health until the announcement was made on their favourite mainstream news channels that she was taking time off to recover before the important TV debate took place. She had recovered from pneumonia sufficiently to put up a good show in the one-on-one -on -one debate against Donald Trump, but Trump was very much on form himself for the debate and had the extra ammunition to fire against her campaign to be president of her ill health to add to his assertion that she would face jail time for her role in covering up the insider leaks of the damning emails that plagued her campaign throughout the run-ups to voting. It's quite true that Trump's speaking style was very to the point, and he pulled no punches when driving his point home succinctly. He declared, I wouldn't go to France, making one of his best sneering faces when commenting on the escalating terrorist attacks on the French capital, because France is no longer France. And it was a main pillar of his election campaign to bring more jobs to America by keeping illegal Mexican immigrants out. Somehow the word illegal got dropped from the psyches and vocabulary of the average liberal voter, and they saw all immigrants, legal or illegal, as having an automatic right to cross the border from Mexico and work in the US. As a result, Trump's insistence that he would build the wall, a chant often taken up by his supporters at his election rallies, offended them deeply as being anti-American and anti-human rights. Democrats still argued that Hillary was the better candidate better policies, pro-women, pro-immigrants and pro-good hair, 
while they saw Trump as anti-everything, against immigrants, the salt of the earth that had helped build America, never mind the fact that both Hillary and their last president, Obama, had both previously declared themselves as wanting to get tough on enforcing illegal immigration policies. What a crude beast Donald was, they declared, so brutishly locker, roomishly rude about women, and so ridiculous with his common speech patterns and bad hair. So orange. Not all Trump supporters were deplorables, as Hillary Clinton suggested, or trailer trash, as the comedy skits on TV seemed to suggest. But most liberals that featured in the alt comedy skits on YouTube, which were watched avidly by Trump supporters as a slight relief from a daily life which involved being an object of derision for supporting Trump, seemed to be very middle class and out of touch with the concerns of less well-off people and to positively dislike them, especially if they happen to be white, even though they were themselves quite often white. The phenomenon of the black Trump voter or the Latino or Mexican voter caused them such massive cognitive dissonance that they decided to ignore it entirely. And it was dismissed by the mainstream press completely as well, being an inconvenient fact which was difficult to fit in with the mainstream narrative about what a racist Donald Trump was. After the elections had been lost for the Democrats and the cathartic public wail-ins and veritable veil of tears that characterised the Democrats' loss of the elections to the Trump God King, the comedian Kathy Griffin had gone a little too far for her own good when she held a rubber head with the likeness of Trump aloft, dripping gore in an expression of what many fantasised they would do to Trump, where it's still the Middle Ages, and earned a slap on the wrist for her death wish fantasy by being banned from working the big comedy gigs for some time afterwards. However, reworkings of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, featuring Trump as the stabbing victim at the play's climax, were deemed acceptable for Trump-hating audiences to find comfort in, after the continuing trauma of finding their least favourite president difficult to depose. The Keck Nation of Kekistan, as a section of internet-savvy humorous meme-producing trolls have become known before the elections, continued to celebrate long into the post-election period, enjoying producing more of the online memes that helped to elevate Trump to a mythic status of God-King in many Amaga's opinion. Many among this troll army of meme creators were active on the political online image boards and forums, such as 4chan, and would later become important contributors to the ranks of the Q army, providing support for Q's posts elsewhere on the web, in tweets, as well as contributing research towards and debate around the Q drops in 4chan forums, and later on 8chan. Chapter 6 Chapter 6 Desiree hated Democrats and liberals alike as much as the next patriot and didn't always manage to stay calm in the midst of so much drama, political and personal. The other political truther channels on YouTube kept her emotions fully engaged 
along with her personal crusade to see her daughter's killers in jail. Her videos often began sedately enough, with her coffee pot on the boil, a couple of cats and her small dog, Sully, wandering past or scratching themselves sleepily in the afternoon sun that streamed in the window, the red Our Lady of Guadalupe rug overseeing the proceedings from the wall behind where she liked to sit. She usually put the coffee on to boil, to give time for a few people to arrive into her chat, once noticing the notification arrive on whatever device they used to internet on, and to say hello while she poured her coffee. After she had been settled at her kitchen table for a while, and pleasantries had been exchanged, she would begin on her topic of the day, chosen from subjects which had engaged her attention on Colonel Ray Peters' channel earlier, or perhaps Michael Quinn's channel, which she still followed developments on, to see how his AI investigations were going, maybe get ideas, and to monitor what his new subscribers who came over from Katie's channel were up to. What Katie did next, we do not know, for those of you who are curious, as she was soon forgotten. The subject of her daughter's death nearly always came up, and at times a heated tirade against the anti-cult institutes Rick Russell followed, that left no one in doubt about how rotten to the core his institute was. I found it intriguing that the murder case had not gone further, and I have to say I was curious by now to find out more details that would flesh out the story she told which seemed to always be missing relevant information about the mode of murder and some of the other details that I had questions about. So I did carry out a few investigations myself online, as per her suggestion, based on some of the things she said in her videos. I noticed that she didn't like questions about the murder when people in her chat asked her for more details. So it seemed like the only way to take the edge off my curiosity, now that it had been piqued by Desiree's videos. It's often been said that curiosity killed the cat. And although finding out some new things about Desiree online didn't finish me off completely, what I found out floored me. She'd performed such a skillful assassination of Russell's character by that stage in various videos each of which expanded on her original stalker themes, that I was beginning to su suspect that there was some other story underneath the rather improbable stalker narrative. How could Russell's Jewish gang not have caught up with a 60-something-year-old very obese lady with a YouTube channel, which often included the gang leaders' names in the video titles by now when they managed to locate her daughter to exterminate her? I wondered, due, due to the surreal elements of the story, and perhaps even due to some of the strangeness of the related channels I was now watching too, how much of what I saw on the truth fleet was real. As she rambled, I sometimes caught myself leaning forward over my laptop to examine the tooth in the front of the lower jaw, trying to figure out if it was some kind of fake bridge and she an actress hired by someone to do that show, then following up the thought by thinking how little sense that made too. It just all seemed too odd to be true, 
and she herself too like a caricature of a person to be a real person. I attributed this partly to her appearance and it became more strange as the odd cockroach started to appear and ramble as she rambled along edges of tables, up the wall, unnoticed by her, but really hard to miss. I couldn't understand how someone, even on a low income, wouldn't get that long solitary tooth in the lower jaw dealt with at least, since it seemed to cause spittle to collect at the front of her mouth, where it eventually had to be either wiped off every few minutes or be ignored as she continued with her story enthusiastically to form a full droplet before falling somewhere into her huge lap. Some others in chat seemed to accept her stalking and murder story without question and not have the troubled feeling I was getting settled in. I thought perhaps cultural differences made her seem odd to me, her lifestyle, if you could call it that, but the stories she told were truly testing for any remotely logical mind to wrap itself around. I must confess that I'm a deeply cynical and doubting person and like Thomas in the Bible, tend to question everything, poking my fingers in to see if my senses could be trusted. I was a little cynical about the Sunday live streams as well, which were frequented by Christians who came across from Colonel Ray Peter's channel, I supposed, tuning in for the mentions of them that were often made and subbing to enjoy the Sunday readings and chat in fellowship, as they like to put it. These Christians often encouraged Desiree to pray, and I was surprised to see that when she tried to oblige them with a Hail Mary one Sunday, she found that she couldn't remember the words. She changed topics swiftly to cover the lapse in memory, which hadn't apparently been assaulted as frequently as my own memory banks were, with recitations of prayers at all kinds of random moments during the school day to drum them in even if I didn't pray much of my own time in later years, as Desiree claimed she did. Perhaps her French nuns had been a bit lax after all. What with all that letting their little Desiree de la Lune moon about too often in her trances instead of joining in the prayers. She often referred to them fondly, nevertheless, despite forgetting their prayers in her Sunday sessions or perhaps because they had been entranced by the trances. While talking about her French nuns, she liked making little use of French phrases pronounced with an impressively rolling oars and a gay continental air of refinement and a jaunty upward tilt of her head to reveal a chin that would normally be disguised by a couple of folds of thyroidal looking fat and all but buried in it. With the lisp, however, caused by the obstruction of the long tooth and the formidable wall of plaque showing on the remaining upper teeth when she smiled, all apple-faced and chalet-girlish giggly. She sounded more like Daffy Duck trying to pronounce fuffering succotash than whatever Cajun French version of a chalet girl might be. She sometimes wore a shirt that had an embroidered logo of Tweety Pie on the pocket on live streams. And I hoped on these days that she would do her French bit, as it would seem even funnier with the cartoon bird perched on her huge chest for some reason. 
I was reminded, despite my best efforts not to go there, as Desiree talked of religion, of more details from my own Catholic education, where I had to spend far too much time with nuns and came to detest them. With my cynical nature, even extending to the existence of God, not making me all that popular with nuns, they tried every way they could think up to quell it and replace it with faith, which just left me with a lifelong distrust and downright distaste for the entire nun species. I was a bit dubious about the whole God thing too. The Hail Mary, however, was etched into my memory forever despite my best efforts to shake off anything to do with the rest of that ghastly time in my school life that constituted some of the longest and dullest hours of my childhood and adolescence. Those long hours under the clock that seemed to never move forward with the suspended suffering Jesus directly above it, as tortured by it, it seemed, as myself, as he looked down at the frozen minute hand disconsolately nodding off with boredom. I sometimes drew in my copy books, read novels, or sat enjoying the warmth of sunbeams that made it through the classroom windows onto my hands on the desk, warming me inside more than the Bible ever could, while the nun droned on at the top of the classroom. Not quite the Desiree de la Lune mystical experience that made her French nuns simper at having such a special child in their midst so much as an I have suffered moment, as described by Delacroix of Texas in her creepy religious books, minus the erotic connotations. My cynicism about the kindness of Christians who loved to torture little girls by telling them about the God-man who had died on the cross to forgive our dreadful six-year-old sins with his suffering far exceeding anything they could inflict upon us via rulers across the backs of knees or lingering gruesome descriptions of exactly how the nails were hammered in by the cruel Roman soldiers extended later to his cynicism about almost everything else as well. The adoring nuns part of Desiree's story was starting to sound pretty far-fetched, like the rest of her stories, with little inconsistencies emerging, like dental gaps, to make me want to start digging around further online into her. Desiree had regaled her audience about Colonel Ray Peter's polygamy one night, as it was a recent revelation and still a juicy bit of gossip on everyone's lips. She took this as significant in relation to where Mormons were at generally, and in particular, morally. Their ethics left a lot to be desired, according to Desiree, and Potter's past polygamy was just a symptom of the corruption of the Mormon belief system as a whole. The Christians in chat were largely agreeing with her and seemed to be enjoying both the character assassination that was taking place, as well as the disparagement of a religion different to their own. Lots of Bible quotations were being bandied about in chat and heart and praying hands emojis strewn about like rosary beads and much talk of demons and putting on the armour of God to defend against them was also being had. I was also in chat, and I found her annoyance with Colonel Ray Peters amusing, as I noticed her love of him seemed to be turning more to hate all the time, 
because although she'd had some of his subs pay her attention, he himself ignored her content entirely, never mentioning her back in his own videos, no matter how many videos she made covering his latest pronouncement about Q, and never commenting under her videos once, as it was often expected that someone who is a creator had mentioned at length at many videos could be expected to do. As she continued to berate Ray's religion, however, in an inspired last bid, perhaps, to get him to notice her, finally, I noticed myself that not everyone in chat was feeling entertained or amused by the rant. One subscriber, a lady with the elegant avatar named Delphi, who Desiree used to refer to as Delphi, was repeatedly asking Desiree to stop, please stop, in chat. Desiree thoroughly warmed up to her topic of Colonel Ray Peters and the evil cult of Mormonism, continued on, oblivious to the rising upset Delphi was experiencing, causing a minor stir in chat. I asked Delphi, was she all right, and got no answer. But the pleading continued until finally her last comment, all in caps, before she fled the scene altogether appeared. I'm a Mormon! Dear, oh dear, I thought. Poor old Delphi was bound to be upset. What with all that cult calling and demon be gone type remarks between the chat and Desiree both on a roll with the topic. So as the stream ended, I went looking for a comment by Delphi under Desiree's videos with the thought that at least I could leave a reply to one of her comments saying, I'm sure not everyone hates Mormons and I hope she wouldn't take it to heart too much. Gave them their due, a few more people in chat that night had asked if she was upset about something before she left so suddenly. I imagined her sitting somewhere that night after the stream, weeping her little Greek heart out, perhaps doing a bit extra praying or whatever Mormons do. Eventually, I found a comment and thinking it might aggravate Desiree more if I made a sympathetic comment under her own video, which might seem critical of Desiree's strongly held views about what demons Mormons were, I clicked on the avatar name to be brought to Delphi's channel, where I found one of her own home videos, and left the comment there instead. Other incidents followed. I'd a run-in myself when I asked a question in chat about how her daughter was murdered, not being able to bear the suspense anymore of waiting for her to tell us, while constantly mentioning the murder and telling us to investigate. Desiree seemed to take exception to the question and pointed out that her chat was not an interrogation room, but a chance to sit with her in her living room. I was a bit bewildered by this attitude, since clearly we were sitting in our own living rooms, watching her videos on the internet in hers. But I was starting to learn that Desiree didn't like questions. She was more comfortable telling a story and having people in chat say, yes, Desiree, at intervals, to demonstrate that they were listening as well as agreeing. Or, you are so right, Desiree to further demonstrate that Desiree was a very smart old bird indeed, and always right. It was important to remember she was always right, because there was sure to be trouble ahead for you. I discovered that the hard way, if you ever suggested she might be wrong about something. 
When she came towards the end of a good stream where everyone was in agreement with her views and telling her so, and when she had gotten everything she wanted to say off her very ample chest, she radiated satisfaction, and her rounded cheeks looked like dimpled rosy apples above the smug smile of a woman who'd had a very satisfying night talking about that demon Ray or her newest crush, Gerald Cross, or her nemesis, Rick Russell, and his anti-cult institute's Jewish stalkers, Killers Gang. There was another lady who Desiree had offended, who I was later to get to know better, but who I hadn't met before. I forget what it was that had offended Desiree this time, probably another unwanted question about the murder. But this lady, who was known then as Silver Moon, I ran into in comments a day or so after the little spat that had ended up with Desiree blocking her, as it's easy to do if you were a channel owner, because there's an option available to give you control over what comments appear both in your chat and in your comment section. Once blocked, the commenter need not be heard from again, unless you wish to unblock them. Silver Moon was telling someone about how unfair Desiree's treatment of her had been. And I commented to her that since she was an elderly woman, maybe we should be a bit forgiving of her, just as a nod to her age kind of thing. Silver Moon agreed, and some weeks later I noticed that Desiree had unblocked her, and she was back in chat. This turned out to be unfortunate for Silver Moon, as they would have a far worse disagreement later on. As would Desiree and myself soon after I did the research on her murder story and wrote a blog post about her.